Hello friends, this is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This episode is brought to you by Swarmia, the engineering effectiveness platform for modern software organizations. Swarmia offers a holistic approach to effectiveness by giving engineering leaders, managers, and teams full visibility into three key areas business outcomes, developer productivity, and developer experience. CTOs, VPs of engineering, and engineering directors use Swarmia to answer questions like, is the work we're doing moving the business in the right direction? How are our strategic initiatives progressing? What part of our engineering investment can be capitalized for financial reportings? Managers and team leads use Swarmia to measure healthy engineering productivity metrics and recognize teamwork anti-patterns. With these insights, they are able to proactively eliminate bottlenecks such as too much work in progress, siloing, and interruptions. Engineering teams, on the other hand, use Swarmia to speed up code reviews, identify and fix slow builds, and improve collaboration. The two-way Slack integration allows them to quickly read, react, and reply to GitHub comments without having to leave Slack. Swarmia is trusted by hundreds of modern engineering organizations, including Plio, Shoko, Vault, Honeycomb, and Outreach. You can read more and get started with a 14-day free trial at swarmia.com. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today I welcome Dr. Melanie Reback. Tune in from Amsterdam. And Melanie is CEO and co-founder of Radically Open Security, uh, which you can find under the funny domain radical.sexy, um, and founder of Nonprofit Ventures. And uh, today we talk about cyber, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, in your in your consultancy, you focus on pen testing. So it would be would be nice to hear a bit more about like your thoughts about like typical attack vectors today and um, like maybe a few war stories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, so that some of my listeners can maybe 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 uh, figure out um, a, a few things they they need to change on the architecture as well. Um, but first of all. Let's start with the name of your company. What makes you radically open? Yeah, so uh, I'm Melanie from Radically Open Security. I'm the CEO and co-founder. Uh, we are a 10-year-old uh, cybersecurity company in the penetration testing space uh, primarily. So what this means is that uh, companies, governments, nonprofit organizations uh, hire us in uh, to break uh, their computer systems, infrastructure, uh, networks, um, 
embedded systems, crypto, blockchains. And uh, we basically tell them uh, how we broke it and give them recommendations for how to fix it. So uh, it's quite a fun job. Um, we're about a 10-year-old company. We have roughly 50 uh, staff members. We've had about 150 customers, uh, ranging from uh, Google uh, and Mozilla to the European Commission and the Dutch Energy Grid to you know hosting providers, uh, banks, insurance companies, telcos, literally core internet, uh, like internet exchanges and uh uh, yeah, and for the rest, uh, about a third of our um, clientele is actually in the not-for-profit space. So we do work for nonprofits, NGOs, and civil society organizations on a not-for-profit basis at cost price. So basically, uh, at zero margin. Uh, we are a social enterprise uh, in the cybersecurity space, which already makes us a bit different. And what definitely makes us different is first uh, that we're steward-owned, we're foundation-owned, uh, and we also give ninety percent of our profits to charity. And that makes us, of course, very different. Uh, the last uh, 10% is our cash flow buffer that we use to make payroll at the end of every month. And in the first uh, eight book years, we're currently closing book year nine, uh, we managed to donate about 800,000 euros uh, to the NLNet Foundation. And that's a Dutch uh, internet-related charity that then redistributes those funds to uh, open source projects, digital rights initiatives, and anything for a better open internet. You would certainly recognize some of the names uh, of uh, those who are receiving that money, things like uh, uh, GNU, <laughs> uh, the Tor Project, uh, DNSSEC, WireGuard, uh, Jitsi. Um, yeah, basically a whole bunch of usual suspects in the uh, open source uh, and uh, open internet space. And why do you do that? I mean, it's kind of like, why did you come up with that idea initially? Yeah, so I came up with this uh, idea initially because, uh, you know, I've been in cybersecurity now for over 20 years. And I have quite some friends that have gotten a bit burned out uh, from the industry, just in the sense that it is spends so much time acting really commercial. And oftentimes there's a bit of an ethics problem in the industry. So companies will do things like, um, well, uh, yeah, sell, basically develop surveillance systems, sell them to developing countries. Uh, they'll work with intelligence agencies. I know that the uh, Opinions might be split on how okay that is. Some people find it's it's fine. Other people think not so much. Uh, they also hack activists, things like Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion. Um, in either case, uh, quite a number of the Dutch uh, hacker community uh, were very against this. And uh, it sort of came to heads uh, about 10 years ago at a organic uh, homegrown community hacker camp called OM, Observe, Hack, Make. And, uh, yeah, uh, basically, uh, the, the actual ticket sales were boycotted by both the Dutch hacker community and the German chaos computer club, uh, back then because, uh, one of the chief sponsors, uh, you know, sort of fit these categories and they actually created at the time a sort of a camp within a camp called noisy square that was dedicated to the uh, discussion of ethics, uh, within the cybersecurity, uh, industry. So uh, at the time, it was incredibly evident to me that the, uh, you know, the, the hackers were not so happy about the choice of employers. 
At the same time, also, I was working at the time at ING Bank in their cybercrime team. And uh, I also dealt with uh, some of these consultancy companies also from the customer side. Uh, at one particular moment, we had a very large uh, DDoS attack uh, that uh, got us some uh, unwelcome media attention. <laughs> Mind you, this was back, I think, in uh, like 2003, 2004. And, uh, you know, one of these consultancies, they kind of parachute in and they're like, stand back, we will solve the problem for you. And I was just like, yeah, okay. So I'm the, the lead researcher of the uh, CSERT team here at the bank. If you're so lead, I can probably uh, learn a whole bunch from you. And then they were looked at me and they were like, cybersecurity is hard. <laughs> And I was just like, okay, guys, you know, I used to be an assistant com professor of computer science specialized in cybersecurity at the Free University of Amsterdam. Why don't you try me? You know, and, but they kept uh, deleting log files, uh, like, you know, turning off logging when they were working in screen and things like that. And eventually I just like physically stood next to them and looked over their shoulder because that was the one way they couldn't get rid of me. And <laughs> sure enough, you know, they were using the same open source tools as everyone else, but they didn't want you to know that because they wanted you to believe that, you know, security is this kind of black magic that like only they can do, you know, and I was just like, upset because I was just like, you know, this is total crap. So basically, I decided, you know, between this and the, the, the discontent from the hacker community that, you know, look, I mean, the customers aren't really happy with how commercial this is all going. You know, the hackers aren't happy either. I think there's a hole in the market. And that was when I decided to uh, make the decision to leave uh, the bank and to start uh, Radically Open Security. And I really made kind of a not-for-profit business model uh, for the company because uh, I really wanted to make it clear that uh, we were different and I wanted to put my money where my mouth was. Because it's one thing to say, oh, look, I'm a social enterprise. And then everybody's like, oh, okay, great. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> there's so much greenwashing these days. But I figured by first First of all, giving away my company for one euro to a foundation. And secondly, also with this uh, fiscal fundraising institution hack <laughs> that we used, it's basically a fiscal construction that locks us into donating 90% of our profits. I mean, what more can I do? <laughs> like, it, I've, I've basically architected the company in such a way that I will never get rich from it. And the thing is, if there are no shareholders uh, with, with, with a profit motive, then really the only reason for being left for such an organization is social impact. And that was uh, the point that I wanted to make. So, of course, when I first started it, nobody even thought that you could donate 90% of your profits and still survive as a company. The reason, I mean, at the beginning, I didn't know if I could do it either. But uh, but, but the reason for confusion is because people think uh, that we're donating 90% of our revenues. That's not it. If, you know, if we donated 90% of our revenues, we couldn't run a company. But 90% uh, of our profits is basically what we have left over after all of our staff and, and, and subcontractors are paid, after we've made all necessary investments and in, in growth and stability of the company and paid for all kinds of like overhead, like I'm kind of like useless managerial overhead, you know, so... Uh, so it's the kind of thing that like all these costs first need to, you know, we can even, if we need to make reserves uh, for next year for expenditures uh, that we know are coming up, like if we want to buy uh, new servers, you know, we can uh, already create a reserve for that if we like, so we don't have to donate that away. So it's a bit of a detailed uh, bookkeeping 
exercise. <laughs> and uh, it can create a little bit of cash flow havoc if you get it wrong, but it always equalizes uh, in the year after. So uh, it's a bit of a ballet with money. It's not necessarily the most practical way to run a company, but it, it's perfectly possible. And we've shown that actually a company can basically donate all of its non-reinvested profits uh, and not only survive, but thrive. And, and again, the fact that we have such a I think quite broad, you know, customer uh, portfolio combined with the size of our company. We're also still growing. We regularly win RFPs against uh, much larger, uh, you know, uh, well, competitors. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think in that sense, uh, we're kind of proving that it can be done. And we're also trying to inspire other, uh, yeah, entrepreneurs and also tech entrepreneurs to dare to create a not-for-profit company just purely for the impact, you know? And, and I think this resonates with a lot of techies because a lot of techies are also into open source and definitely the hacker community also is very open source minded by and large. So I think that, uh, this is the reason why it works. It tends to attract actually very high quality, uh, staff members and also a lot of, uh, like-minded customers. And it also just so happens that uh, the CISOs <laughs> who actually get us in the door uh, of their companies uh, and fight procurement battles for us, uh, they also oftentimes happen to be a member of the hacker community as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can I can imagine. I recently visited the CCC event here in Hamburg um, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I can really imagine that it resonates well with that, that, that those people there, right? Um, Uh, be, because many um, are, are are striving for for like bigger things um, and, and, and not just uh, I don't know a normal salary, um, uh, but but want to be different. Um, and, and I think that 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 works out quite well. Um, and and I, I can imagine that. And you also started like way earlier than let's say many of those of your your, your greenwashing competitors, right? <laughs> um, I, I can imagine that it's a good fit. Um, for for the scene um but maybe let's let's step back a little um you you told us that you worked for ing and 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 that you you uh, worked as an assistant professor uh, professor in the past um what what sparked your initial interest in cybersecurity um and and what did what is your 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 nerd journey let's say <laughs> uh that started early <laughs> So back when I was probably, I don't know, eight years old, <laughs> you know, I can remember uh, learning my first bits of programming. Um, it really started with my parents. So back at the time, uh, I lived in Naperville, Illinois, and both of my parents worked for Bell Labs. Uh, and for those who aren't as old as uh, us, uh, of course, uh, Bell Labs was sort of the Google back in the day. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so my parents, uh, had, uh, you know, a really old, you know, 8086 machine with a, you know, um, with a 300 baud modem. And, uh, you know, I, I used to basically log in, uh, you know, to play NetHack. Uh, this was my misguided youth, you know, and around the same time also, uh, I started learning GW basic, uh, which was sort of, you know, <laughs> the programming language uh, at the time. Uh, also I re remember in elementary school also starting with logo. I don't remember how many of you uh, know that little like turtle, you know, that could kind of like draw <laughs> on the screen. So I kind of started from a really young age and I was really fortunate to be 
uh, young in that kind of an environment. Because of course, also in Naperville, there were a lot of other uh, engineers around from um, from Bell Labs, and they sent their kids there. So I was just very fortunate, I think, to be in such an environment. My father was uh, basically a telecommunications a hardware manager, and my mother was a C programmer. <laughs> uh, so <Wow. laughs> yeah, so I really had you know the the role models uh, from the very beginning. It's not to say I didn't try to rebel. I mean, at a certain point, uh, when I first enrolled uh, for my bachelor's uh, at the university, I actually, my parents told me I needed to either be a doctor or a lawyer. And uh, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, so I actually enrolled as pre-med. But it was actually, I think, halfway through my first year when I had to take a required computer science class that I realized that I could add a a double major, basically a second major in computer science, just to like make my childhood hobby, (laughs) uh, you know, actually my... uh, my, my career as such. And I graduated with a double major in biology and computer science. And then of course, what's the logical thing to do after that? Well, you go into bio, bioinformatics. So I worked, uh, I, I did actually my uh, senior thesis at the university on, uh, on molecular modeling. I also had a summer internship in the same area on proteinomics. And when I graduated, I got a job on the human genome project at MIT and this is back in uh, back in 2001 uh, at the crux of the uh, human genome race between uh, Solera Genomics and the public effort. So I was in the Eric Lander lab, which was part of the, uh, the, the public effort. So I'm actually one of the very, 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 very long list of co-authors on the original uh, G- uh, human genome sequencing paper that was uh, published in Nature. <laughs> um, so it was a really exciting uh, time to be there. Of course, uh, being at a place like MIT, I realized that if you only had a bachelor's degree, there was a glass ceiling. So I wanted to go back uh, to grad school. Uh, I also, you know, at the time I was just in the States, I wanted to see Europe because everything just seemed so magical and interesting (laughs) at the time. And uh, yeah, and and that that was when I decided to move to the Netherlands. Uh, I went to grad school. I did my master's at the Technical University of Delft. And uh, that was actually when I made my pivot away from bioinformatics into cybersecurity, when I actually realized that all that stuff that looked so fun when I was a kid, but that I didn't dare to do because it was illegal, (laughs) that now I could actually get study points for it. So it felt like the biggest coup. Uh, So I I made my switch then. I did my master's thesis on uh, intrusion detection. And then from there, I... um, got a PhD position with uh, Andrew Tannenbaum, <laughs> who a few people might know from uh, Minix and uh, some of his uh, computer science textbooks. Uh, so, uh, but he required me to switch my topic to um, uh, ubiquitous computing and the security and privacy of that. Uh, I was just like, okay, you know, it was a chance to get to work with Andy, so you don't say no to that. So I switched my topic. I eventually settled uh, after my first year on uh, security and privacy of radio frequency identification technology. So, uh, you know, things like access cards and, uh, uh, you know, public transit passes. And back in 2006, uh, I got, uh, I wrote a paper that was called, Is Your Cat Infected with a Computer Virus? <laughs> so I basically had come up with the very first proof of concept malware for RFID tags. Of course, nowadays it's kind of a no-brainer, like, you know, y- 
of course, they're just another untrusted data carrier. Duh, right? You know. But of course, back in 2006, it wasn't yet obvious. Someone had to be the first. So I, I wrote this uh, this paper, and it exploded. It went viral. So basically, it was you know on the front page of the papers. It was in the New York Times. It was uh, uh, like I literally had an antivirus company like taking out full page ads debunking my research. Which you know, if you're a grad student and that happens, you know that you've made it. <laughs> Yeah, I think the crux actually was the chief privacy officer at Philips one time looked me in the face and said, your research is bad for my company. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a very interesting time. Uh, At that time, I also built uh, an embedded device called the RFID Guardian, which was basically a, uh, it was one of the very first uh, RFID uh, cloning devices. Uh, and But it could also do relay and replay and fuzzing and all kinds of different things and, and spoofing and jamming. Uh, and I built three different uh, versions of it. We made our own hardware, uh, ported the real-time OS and uh, developed all the way up the stack. Uh, I wanted to valorize it uh, and... Uh, well, this was around 2007, 2008. We all know what happened to the economy at that time. Uh, so first, uh, what happened was the company that was helping me with the prototype that was located in the Bay Area, uh, it turns out they had, unbeknownst to me, subcontracted the work to Indians, Indian subcontractors. But when they uh, lost money because of the decline of the economy, they stopped paying these Indian subcontractors who then took my uh, prototype as a hostage in a labor dispute. (laughs) So all of a sudden, yeah, you can't make this up. Um, So all of a sudden, like progress stopped on the device. And I was like, what's going on? Like, you know, why, why are things no longer happening? And it went on like this, like for months. And then eventually uh, the funding agency who had promised me an extra year of funding, um, they also lost a bunch of money when the stock market collapsed and uh, that last year of funding that they'd promised me just dried up. <laughs> and I was scrambling around trying to find uh, other sources of money. But uh, yeah, it didn't work out. And of course, hardware that's like 90% done is basically a doorstop. So uh, I like to call it my first failed startup. Uh, <laughs> you know, every entrepreneur uh, has one of those stories. At that point, uh, that was when I decided to leave uh, the university, uh, which was painful because a lot of my identity was really tied up in being an assistant professor. But I moved for a period uh, to Vancouver, Canada uh, to work at Citrix uh, on the Zen Hypervisor team. I was basically uh, in charge of a product that was called, uh, I was leading the Vancouver office and working as an engineering manager on Zen Client, which was basically a client side uh, yeah, implementation of, uh, of Zen. Um, after that, product didn't do very well. So I got laid off. Then I traveled for a while. And then I eventually went back to the Netherlands and worked at ING (laughs) and went in their cybersecurity team. And and sort of, yeah, from from there, I started Radically Open Security and the rest is history. Wow. (laughs) That's a crazy story. Um, uh, So very impressive. Um, Then I have a follow-up question. Is my cat infected with the virus? You never know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, looking looking at today's technology, let's say NFC, BLE, RFID, um, did, did that evolve security-wise or like how much would you trust uh, your, let's say, NFC keys or Bluetooth LE uh, keys? Yeah. Um, so at the time when I was doing the research, uh, a lot of the products, it was still sort of 
I mean, remember, this was two decades ago. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the tags, of course, they're inductively powered by the reading devices uh, that uh, read them out. Um, and the further away the reading device is, also the, the power uh, exponentially decreases. So the problem here is that a lot of the early... Um, tags didn't really have enough power uh, to be able to have enough processing capacity to do strong crypto uh, on the chips. So, you know, of course it, it depended on how far away, you know, basically what the reading range uh, was uh, of the tag itself. Um, but indeed with the early things like the pet chips, I mean, there basically were more or less no strong access controls uh, on things like that. So you could basically just uh, rewrite it. Um, that's, of course, what my paper was uh, was pointing out. Um, of course, at a certain point, you started getting, uh, particularly also for the for the close proximity uh, tags, you know, they, they can get more uh, power from the reading devices. Of course, in the last 20 years, semiconductors have not stood still. So, of course, now you can pack a lot more uh, transistors into a much smaller area, which also requires less uh, less power. So uh, I would say the capacity of the tags nowadays uh, is better than it was at that time. Uh, it also depends on cost, of course, because of course, lower cost uh, tags also are going to usually have fewer transistors. And uh, so oftentimes cost also um, plays a role, you know, beyond also size um, of the antenna. So there's a number of factors, but I would say though that the, um, look, I mean, the sky hasn't fallen. People are still using RFID for logistics. I think that it's just like any other technology in the sense that there are cost and benefit <laughs> analyses. Uh, it's not perfect. I mean, you can still, it's, it's still yet another untrusted input source. Uh, strong crypto helps, but I mean, you know, my RFID guardian didn't succeed, but the Proxmark, uh, which was also uh, a contemporary at the time, they built a much simpler product, which is, I think, why their uh, <laughs> product succeeded when mine failed. Um, you know, the Proxmark is still around and, uh, you know, pen testers on my uh, team, they use the Pro Proxmark quite regularly, uh, you know, to clone access cards and things, uh, during penetration tests. So the systems isn't perfect, but then again, no system is perfect. So, uh, at the end of the day, it's more just that it needs to be architected well enough, uh, for the, uh, you know, uh, attacker model. And also, you know, given the kinds of crown jewels that you're trying to protect and uh, just the specifications but, of the system. And but, but, but for your home, would you trust it more than a, a, an old key? Um, no. Well, depends. <laughs> lock, <laughs> now, we, we do lock picking also at my company, so uh, it depends on the lock. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, one time I uh, had a, a pet sitter over because I was, uh, both me and my partner, we were on holiday. And uh, the partner uh, had uh, turned on, um, basically started cooking something and then went outside to let somebody else uh, into the house and then uh, left their keys in the house. And uh, we basically wound up having to call the uh, the fire department uh, <laughs> uh, to come uh, to try and uh, basically uh, break uh, break down the door to get back into the apartment uh, to prevent a fire. Thank thank goodness they did get in time, get there in time. But uh, the door wasn't even locked; it had just you know closed and went click. But we had a pretty strong lock on it, and it took the fire department, I think, at least uh, somewhere between a half hour and an hour to get in, <laughs> to break the lock. So uh, in that sense, I, I definitely tr trust the, uh, the lock <laughs> quite a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, maybe um, coming to, a, let's say, more, let's say, applicable 
um, areas um, for, for our listeners. Uh, I, I wanted to get like a little security update. Um, what is what is what is cracking these days? Um, from your perspective, what are the most typical attack vectors these days that um, maybe my listeners can, can can should be aware of? Um, what is it like if you have an office and if you don't have an office these days? Yeah. So I would say that uh, as usual, I mean, complexity uh, is the big problem with uh, a lot of different organizations, particularly with the large ones that would have the kinds of CTOs that are probably listening to your podcast. The problem is that these organizations are so large that the attack surface is oftentimes completely unclear. Um, you know, for the largest organizations, like taking an, an ISP Uh, or, you know, some kind of multinational, uh, they have absolutely no idea uh, what's on their network, you know, what devices are there. In fact, the perimeter of the network is completely unclear. And, and certainly since COVID, uh, also given the whole uh, work from home movement, of course, now the, uh, uh, the boundaries of the office network have also extended into people's homes. And Lord knows what kind of, you know, Chinese smart devices uh, and whatnot are uh, attached uh, to those networks. So, you know, we're, we're, we've really moved uh, to a point where you have to assume that uh, network perimeters really don't exist uh, and that attacks uh, always can come from the inside, uh, which, of course, uh, leads points towards things like zero trust models uh, in the implementation. Um, that being said, uh, also the sheer size of the uh, attack surface also leads to lots of bloated <laughs> software, you know, which, which has monumental numbers of lines of code, not to mention dependencies. Of course, supply chain security nowadays also is, uh, is particularly a hot topic. You know, and statistically speaking, there's uh, 16 bugs for every 1,000 lines of code. <laughs> so if you then look at the, the sheer size of, of the code bases plus dependencies that we're dealing with, I mean, it is literally statistically impossible uh, to create safe uh, software, <laughs> uh, which means that, you know, and, and the problem is there's always an unfair advantage on the size side of the attackers. <laughs> you know, it only takes us one vulnerability to be able to break in, but on the side of the defender, it's completely asymmetric because you have to fix all of the problems, you know, to be able to keep us out. And that's uh, impossible, of course. So, you know, as a result of this, uh, you know, it's also assuming we're, we're talking about multinationals now, but also for the smaller organizations, uh, they're even worse off <laughs> uh, because oftentimes they lack the uh, IT knowledge in-house to be able to do things properly, you know, and sometimes they'll attempt to do it properly, but then, you know, forget to do essential things like update their software, <laughs> you know, and of course the vast majority of, uh, of uh, break-ins occur using CVEs using well-known uh, vulnerabilities, oftentimes that have been patched and announced mm -hmm. sometimes years ago. <laughs> um, you know, and there's all these script kitty scanning tools that basically just trawl the whole internet looking for low-hanging fruit uh, that they can uh, can break into. So, I mean, certainly unpatched software. I mean, I know it sounds like a no-brainer, but uh, you know, and these are also the same kinds of problems we've had since the 1980s, but sadly, you know, we haven't solved this one. And it's also not that easy 
either. <laughs> uh, just because, uh, you know, the small guys don't have the internal capacity to be able to maintain it themselves. If they try outsourcing it, sometimes they'll outsource it to like some brothers, cousins, and neighbors, you know, <laughs> server that they're running somewhere. And, and oftentimes those small hosting providers aren't any better. <laughs> um, you know, and for the small parties, probably the best thing they can do is outsource it to larger more well-known parties, you know, perhaps Amazon's or Google's, uh, but, but then they also have to look at their attacker model and their data governance requirements. And then also to try and figure out whether or not that is acceptable. And of course, uh, particularly, particularly in Europe, oftentimes, uh, that isn't, you know, and also on top of that, with the largest organizations like the multinationals, uh, also, it's really complex trying to keep your software up to date because first it implies that you know what devices you have because you, you need to know that they exist in order to patch them, <laughs> you know, and on top of that, just internal organizational politics of, of various business units within the organization. Uh, because, you know, if something needs to be patched and then if a team doesn't, the question is, do you have either a carrot or a stick that you can use to enforce, you know, the, the, the patching, you know, and there, of course there's software that you could buy that helps, you know, to track and, and manage, uh, patching, uh, throughout entire organizations, but it, it's, it's difficult. It's political. It's, uh, not perfect. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and what makes you party if I, uh, let's say I, 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 I want you to, to pen test my, my services. I have a SaaS company and, and, and you inspect my setup uh, basically outside in, um, What, what makes you party? Like when, when, when do you, do you, do you celebrate that this is going to be an easy job when you find my, let's say WordPress or when, uh, where, where I host my website or when you know that I'm using, I don't know, Google as an IDP or what, or, or Okta, like what, 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 what makes you party? Party. Um, well, I mean, look, if, if you, if you're using WordPress, then we can basically give you a finding in the pen test before we even get started. So, uh, <laughs> You know, and believe it or not, we have found a few vulnerabilities during the scoping phase by accident. Um, anyhow, but uh, but the point is that uh, I think that um, we party more when it's hard for us <laughs> because you know, for us, it's it's sort of there's enough cases where things are easy. You know, I mean. It's really unfortunate when you can basically just run scanning tools. And oftentimes, particularly with small characters, we will literally tell them, like, go run a scanning tool, fix the things first yourself, and then come back to us for the hard stuff, you know, after you've sort of picked up the lowest hanging fruit yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So in that sense, I mean, I think the stuff that we generally tend to party more at is, is when we have to work a little bit harder for it. Because, you know, I mean, look, if you pen test for years, you know, all day, then, you know, at a certain point, you're looking for a challenge, not uh, for the lowest hanging fruit, right? Because <laughs> that I'm not going to say it gets boring after a while, but, uh, but you know, we, we, we like to do the fun and interesting stuff. Uh, so, you know, so in that sense, uh, but, you know, we, we, there's so many really wonderful uh, organizations that we have gotten to pen test. I mean, things like, uh, you know, Internet exchanges, <laughs> uh, you know, which would have some of the most lockdown uh, security uh, that you can imagine. And yet, you know, we still get to, uh, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, also uh, embedded devices are really a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, one of our uh, customers is uh, actually the largest supermarket chain in the Netherlands, and they give us a, a really large number of assignments per year. And we get to pen test, you know, 
sort of point of, not just point of sale terminals, but like self-checkout kiosks, uh, cash safes. <laughs> so literally like money bag machines, you know, we get to, to pen test. I mean, for, for us, that that's the fun stuff. Like that's when we get those kinds of uh, assignments and we, we party. The other thing also where I think we party is when people ask us to pen test stuff that really gets used, like commonly used open source. You know, and the fact that we get to pen test things like the Tor project and Tails and uh, uh, Shadow Socks and, uh, you know, but also just Google. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's just super cool. You know, uh, I mean, also open source things like, like Homebrew, for example, uh, we have a public pen test report um, that we did for them. Um, also just like sometimes even just the little guys, like, uh, this little civil society organizations like Oxfam, Greenpeace, uh, you know, we, we wake up in the morning to be able to pen test those kinds of, uh, those kinds of people. So, uh, yeah. So I would say that that is really some of the highlights <laughs> of what we get to pen test. Uh, you know, I mean, look, if, if people come to us with low hanging fruit, we pen test that too. Uh, cause of course that's uh, very important to pick up. But, uh, for us, I would say sort of like the, the quote unquote specials are, are kind of, uh, what's more fun uh, from a, a party perspective. So. And, 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 um, uh, let's say the boring, like for money projects, are that they like, couldn't, you just give out a list of recommendations, uh, that, that people need to work through before you, they can, they can work with you actually. Do, do you do that? Because I mean, WordPress is a good example, I guess, but there, there are many other things like these days, um, that, that, um, are maybe semi well-known, uh, and, and you see everywhere and you're, you're kind of bored of. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I'm not going to tell people how to architect their systems. I mean, at the end of the day, they need to make their own trade-offs. And look, I mean, there might be compelling reasons for some organizations to use WordPress. You know, I mean, it's, it's easy, you know, to, to manage. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, open source. Uh, I mean, battle tested. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, look, yes, we will definitely recommend that they move over to uh, other CMSs. I mean, look, if it's up to us, they would all uh, switch over to Jackal. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, not everyone is willing to, to technically, you know, capably be able to manage that. So uh, at least if it's going to be hosted by somebody else, if it can be hosted by somebody who at least uh stays on top of it and also who keeps all the plugins up to date because uh, oftentimes we can break in uh, through the plugins uh, with that and uh yeah just um yeah i mean at least try and get them to just to scan these things regularly i mean also other things like uh just making backups and just assuming that it if it is inevitably compromised, which it might be, you know, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, if it's just somebody's personal blog, it might not matter. If you have good backups, then maybe you could just uh, notice it's uh, popped, put it back. I mean, I'm not saying this is optimal, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not necessarily going to lead to uh, personal theft of, uh, you know, sensitive details and, and personal PII and things like that. Not not necessarily. So, I mean, I think you have to put things into context with their attacker model, with their budget. Because oftentimes if people are running WordPress, it's just because they don't have the budget to really be able to, uh, <laughs> or the knowledge to be able to do any better. 
I'm not excusing this. I will still tell them to migrate away from from WordPress. But I mean, also some people are just intimidated (laughs) by tech, (laughs) you know? So if you come with a list of better recommendations, they might just get overwhelmed by it. So uh, again, I'm not saying that this is okay, but I am saying though that this is realistic uh, just because particularly for companies or, or, or organizations where tech is not their main thing inside the company. I mean, if you're talking about like a dentist's office or, you know, some, you know, woodworking, you know, thing that make company that makes tables or something like that. I mean, they're not an, an, a tech company, but of course, a lot of these kinds of smaller uh, SMEs, they do tend to get popped uh, by ransomware uh, reasonably frequently. So, and then it starts coming back to things like, you know, do you have good backups? Are they restorable? Are they also offline? That kind of stuff. Navigating through the crowded space of corporate podcasts, I've come across a standout, the code-centric culture and career podcast. However, it's important to note that this podcast is primarily in German. What distinguishes this podcast from the sea of similar content? It's a refreshing departure from the typical corporate narrative. At CodeCentric, they've embraced a unique approach. The podcast gives a platform to their employees, allowing them to voice their experience and perspectives. This includes everything from the ups and downs of project business, grappling with imposter syndrome, to the complexities and rewards of balancing parental leave with a career in consulting. What I find most commendable about CodeCentric's approach is their unwavering dedication to authenticity. This podcast isn't about putting on a performance or overwhelming listeners with advertisement. It's an open window into their culture, candidly showcasing their strengths and acknowledging areas of improvement. So those who seek authentic stories and insights into the professional world, the CodeCentric's Culture and Career Podcast is more than just a recommendation. It's an essential listen. I encourage you to dedicate an hour to it. The experience is truly worthwhile. To tune in, simply use Spotify or your preferred podcast platform and search for it or visit link.alphalist.com slash cc. And uh, let's say I, I run a SaaS company, 15 people. I Yes, I use WordPress, but I use like a secure WordPress hoster that updates my plugins, etc., etc. Um, and, and I don't have an office, so you can't enter... Uh, my office and uh, I don't know, ask for access to the server room, which is, I guess, uh, a very typical attack vector still these days. Um, where do you smell like the next, the next step? Like what, what is, what is typical, typically um, stuff that people don't spend, spend enough time and money on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is kind of the, the security common sense, you know, basic security hygiene kinds of things, but, uh, looking at things like separation of concerns, (laughs) uh, you know, I mean, how is, uh, their architecture structured, who has access to what, uh, are they sort of isolating, uh, and particularly for, you know, asking the question, what are my crown jewels, right? You know, and, and what do I think are my crown jewels? And what does the attacker think is my crown jewels? You know, because those two things are not always the same. So, uh, you know, and once you know that, it's not that you you can't meaningfully protect everything. Because, you know, when Mm -hmm. you try to protect Mm -hmm. everything, you're going to wind up protecting nothing. So instead, you just need to sort of figure out what it is that you really need to protect, isolate that, and make sure that you have the strongest uh, security just on that part of it. 
So I think that is uh, definitely part of it. Um, I think other things like uh, authentication, how are you handling this? Do you have two-factor available? <laughs> uh, what is your password policy? Um, is it manageable for people? Um, you know, how are you ensuring the passwords are rotated? And, you know, are you using pa password vaults, yes or no? <laughs> you know, and of course, there's, there's plenty of arguments on both sides. Uh, about why that's a good thing to do or why that's not a good thing to do. But is, is it a good thing from your perspective to use, let's say, one password or or LastPass or or something? Or I mean, LastPass maybe not. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, look, they're all vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I say it. I think it depends. Um, yeah. so I think. The real question is, what's the alternative? If the alternative is people uh, storing passwords on Post-it notes, then probably a uh, password uh, manager is better. Uh, I think uh, if the alternative is flat text files that people are using to store all their internal passwords you know, somewhere in the file system, then like I think that one file on the desktop, right? Or people do it. <laughs> phone phone book entries. <laughs> exactly. If that's the alternative, then definitely a password manager is is, is far preferable. Um, but they're single points of failure. Um, actually, my favorite method of uh, passwords is for the majority of passwords, especially the ones you don't care too much about, uh, the whole like magic link idea, or or in other words, sort of the uh, I forgot my password button. So oftentimes I'll do this for websites that I don't care too much about. So I need to create an account to like buy, I don't know, like concert tickets or something and you know but I really actually don't care so much about my account. So what I'll do is my I'll have my browser automatically generate a strong password for me. And then it'll, you know, my browser will say, "Do you want me to save, you know, the the password that you just generated?" And then I'll click on no. So at that point, basically, I'm into my account. I have absolutely no idea what the password is. You know, it just randomly created a strong one. And uh, I buy my tickets and that's that. And then the next time that uh, I need to log into that account, I just click on, uh, I forgot my password, <laughs> you know, and I basically get a, a magic link kind of email uh, to, my e to my email account. And basically what that means is that uh, as long as my email account is secured uh, with, a, with a strong password uh, that I know, you know, off the top, top of my head, then basically, because that backdoor exists anyways. So in that sense, I mean, almost having password vaults is almost no longer necessary <laughs> if, you know, all of the different accounts actually have a, a usable, readily usable, uh, I forgot my password uh, function. And I really uh, kind of prefer uh, doing it that way. And it's also a really easy way to make sure you rotate passwords often enough. So, And, and what do you think? Like, it's very common practice that, uh, let's say you use one password or, or a similar vault and, and you store your 2FA keys um, with your passwords, um, isn't that a bit weird? Uh, if you if you think about the idea of two FA in the first place, it's extremely weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean separation of concerns, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I I separated. I don't put my uh, I don't put my two uh, FA. You know, the uh, I, I mean, I'm not saying that like how I do it is perfect, but. I definitely have it on a different device, <laughs> you know, than uh, where, uh, you know, the passwords, I would say, are being stored. So, um, yeah, there's always room for improvement. I think if I were to hire somebody in my team to like, uh, you know, take spend a couple months, I'm sure they could pop me too, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Melanie, from your perspective, regardless of size, 
what should I do first? I mean, storing passwords or like having a password policy uh, kind of obviously makes sense. But 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 after that, when it when it comes to software, um, and I update my software regularly, what is the next best step from your perspective? Is it is it uh, I don't know working with a company like you guys? Is it um, like at, at the, which size should I, I care about security and and, and how much? Um, does it still work that you kind of have a security team in the company, or you rather work with externals? How how how, how do you see that? Yeah. So basically, um, I think that it is important uh, to get regular penetration tests on your on your infrastructure and also on your software, uh, also sometimes uh, on your organization. <laughs> um, if you have it, I mean, if you have the capacity to have an internal security team, that by all means you should. Uh, I mean, it is problematic sometimes to become dependent on externals. I mean, it was kind of like the story I told you at the beginning <laughs> uh, with, uh, you know, uh, peeking over people's shoulder. I mean, the more you can build internal capacity uh, within the company, you certainly should try. And of course, for some, yeah, an organization as large as a bank, <laughs> you know, there's the budget to be able to do so. Uh, that being said, not every organization has that budget, you know, or has that capacity or is even an attractive or obvious enough place uh, to be able to attract good quality cybersecurity professionals. And in that case, uh, then I think you really don't have much of a choice <laughs> but to uh, find a, kind of a trusted external partner uh, to work with. And in either case, I mean, you should always have, I would say, sort of a kind of a core team and an extended team. And even if you're a larger party, like a bank or something, uh, it's still, you, you need to have uh, the external experts uh, kind of on speed dial, <laughs> uh, you know, or at least uh, in your Rolodex, you know, just put together a little yellow pages of like, you know, in case a situation comes up, this is where I can find uh, the externals. Also, uh, particularly for incident response, make sure you negotiate rates before the incident happens. <laughs> You'll get much better pricing. Um, but, uh, as for penetration testing, uh, most certainly, I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, companies out there like mine, but also many others, you know, the whole principle is that you don't know how to defend your company until you understand how to attack your company. So, uh, you know, and, and you probably won't know how to attack your company because I mean, pen testing is really something, it's a skill that takes decades uh, really to, to learn and to perfect. So, uh, even with the whole, like, you know, uh, within radically open security, we have this peek over our shoulder, uh, method, uh, which is basically our pen testing workflow that, uh, we work in chat rooms online. We use something called rocket chat, which is an open source self-hosted clone of Slack. And we invite the customers into our chat rooms to actually, uh, observe and and interact with our hackers while we are busy breaking uh, your stuff. So um, what are the fundamental cybersecurity practices that from your perspective, every SaaS company regarding of size, regardless of size, should implement? Is there the need for a security team at a certain point? Or like, how do you see that? Um, uh, like, Just from your perspective, is it more... The, the typical companies um, hire um, an expert at a certain point, like an external expert, to to do pen testing. Or where where do you start normally? Where where if you if you want to invest into security, where where to start? Yeah, 
So, I mean, I think by and large, it's always a good thing to invest in your internal capacity uh, for cybersecurity. Um, however, uh, that assumes that you have the, the financial resources to be able to do so. Uh, for larger organizations like a bank, that's uh, realistic. Uh, for, you know, tiny organizations, of course, uh, that isn't going to be doable. Which basically means that uh, I would say for larger corporations, uh, really, I think a good thing to do is indeed, you know, build your own uh, internal red team, build your own internal C-cert, build your own internal, you know, uh, just other uh, security architecture and other uh, security departments, the SOC, uh, you know, but uh, also uh, you might have a core team, but you should also make sure you have an ex extended team because, of course, uh, when the moment uh, comes that uh, they're there's an emergency, you know, and you need to have that yellow pages of external experts that you can have on, you know, on, on speed dial to be able to get to. And the most important part is you want to make sure that you have negotiated rates before the emergency. <laughs> That'll save you some money. Um, so, uh, you know, so at that point, uh, you know, just a, like a core team extended team model for large organizations is useful. For smaller organizations, I think that, uh, yeah, the internal team, the core team is just not doable, which basically means you need to find, uh, you really have no choice but to find external parties uh, that you can cooperate with. And you can certainly find pen testing companies, you know, like mine, but also like many others. And, uh, you know, they can then basically come in on an hourly basis, uh, you know, and just by the hour, be able to help you, uh, with, uh, whatever it is, uh, that you need. And that is by far the, the cheapest way, <laughs> uh, to be able to, uh, you know, and not just cheapest, but also the best way, because I mean, if you're a really tiny organization where security isn't the focus, you're going to have a lot of trouble hiring, <laughs> you know, uh, quality security professionals. Cause you might not be a very obvious place for them to want to work. You know, I mean, uh, smart security folks want to hang out with other smart security folks uh, most of the time. So it's, it's only even really feasible to be able to get that quality of uh, cybersecurity service by hiring an, an external company, but just do insist, uh, that they're partners with you <laughs> in the process and there, that, that there's some amount of openness and transparency of process. Um, at Radically Open Security, we have a uh, workflow that's called uh, Peek Over Our Shoulder uh, for our pen testing process. And what this is, is uh, we work online with chat rooms. <laughs> uh, so we use a, an environment called Rocket Chat, which is basically an open source self-hosted clone of Slack. And we invite customers into our chat rooms to uh, interact with and observe our pen testers while we are busy breaking your stuff. Cool. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, and, and, and it kind of demuffs the, the hacker a bit, right? Um, That's it. Yeah. The whole point of it really is just to uh, kind of uh, really transmit the hacker mindset, particularly to uh, developers, uh, but also security officers and anyone else uh, really involved, you know, uh, sysadmins, DevOps people, you know, just with the idea that the, if they are actually inherently part of the process of breaking the stuff, then they understand, you know, why those problems got there in the first place considerably more deeply. 
you know, and security is a, it's a long-term process and it's a mindset. It's not just a set of patches that you get from a, a pen test report, you know, and this is why I think that, uh, you know, also with openness and transparency of process from our side, it's also very efficient because customers are oracles for us. You know, if we get blocked, if we have a question, if we, a server needs to be restarted, you know, I mean, just having the customer there with such short, uh, communication lines is super handy and super efficient. So really the, the pleasure in that kind of communication goes uh, both ways, you know, and you can insist on having, having this kind of openness and transparency of process with any company, with any pen testing or, or security company that's giving you an engagement. So uh, I would say that's also important, uh, you know, for uh, CISOs or CTOs also just to make sure that whichever vendors that uh, you're working with, that they include you in the process, that they bring you along and educate you while, while it's happening, because ultimately we're going to leave right? You're paying us by the hour. So we're going to, and the real question becomes, are you still able to handle things correctly after we're gone? Yeah. In many cases, not right. Um, it's, a, it's also a lot about education, right? <clears throat> and educating your people, um, that, that, um, the biggest attack vector, which is, which is human, I think, um, is at least not, not as vulnerable as, as in many companies and other companies, right? Yeah. So, uh, social engineering is always a thing <laughs> and, uh, it's getting harder and harder, uh, to tackle. Um, You know, I mean, training is good. We, we do phishing tests uh, for a number of our customers and it certainly helps because, I mean, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit phishing going on. Um, and, you know, a lot of people step into it. I mean, this is the reason why the attackers do it because uh, it pays. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's also, if you have a dedicated attacker, it's very difficult not to walk into it. It because I mean, one of my members of my pen testing team, you know, if they took some time and targeted me, I would click without a doubt. Like, <laughs> you know, so then the next question becomes, you know, what kind of, um, What, what kind of technical architecture do we have backing things up? So when the human inevitably fails, as even with a lot of awareness, they at some point will, like what kind of backups do we have in place, you know, to make sure that the whole situation isn't total loss when inevitably uh, that phishing attack or whatnot uh, does succeed? So mm -hmm. I think that's uh, basically the, uh, the other part of it. And also just understanding that phishing is also getting a lot more broad than it used to be. It's not just phishing mails. I mean, sometimes they call you, sometimes they send SMSs, sometimes they'll send you messages on WhatsApp or Signal. Uh, and even now with things like deep fakes, it's getting really crazy and really creepy uh, what people can produce now using open source software. Uh, we just recently uh, were doing some uh, CEO, uh, <laughs> um, uh, what's it called? C uh, CEO uh, uh, deep fakes uh, in my own company. Basically, uh, one of my staff members had uh, used some open source software to come up with a fake Melanie uh, that basically was uh, telling uh, our financial guy to, to wire some money to uh, a particular location. I mean, it was creepy how much it sounded like me. I mean, somebody who really knows me probably might have not fallen for it because a few of the intonations were a little bit different than how I would usually do it. But for somebody who doesn't know me very well, definitely for sure. I mean, they would, uh, they would fall for it. And uh, even, even if it were, uh, and you can make it interactive too. And the other thing is, uh, 
really the only way I think that you can uh, fight against those kinds of things is, is just indeed making it as interactive as possible and just like asking questions that you expect them to uh, to answer that uh, that they would need insider knowledge uh, to be able to answer. And it's really interesting to also do uh, those kinds of social engineering tests as well because most people wouldn't even think uh, of that kind of vector, but it's, uh, it's just getting good enough nowadays that uh, even your you know, your, your phishing slash, you know, social engineering test should incorporate those kinds of things as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that sounds horrible. I hope I, 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 I'm speaking to the real Melanie and, and, and not some LLM that <laughs> is producing after, good pictures and, and voice. Um. After we did that deep fake test, uh, I actually made jokes about the fact that I wanted to create my own uh, deep fake that can do, give all my interviews for me. <laughs> <laughs> Save me some effort. Um, so, so um, last question back on investments. Um, I, I think like before, um, I mean, working with a with a pen test company also means like working with 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 other people, and and for many technical uh, people, it's actually like first step is rather to invest into technology and and other software, and 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 if you look at if you like, let's say back in the SaaS space. Um, then many companies want to sell you like multi-tenant enterprise plans, um, IDPs, MDMs, and um, many, many things that, that make you put more things into one basket. Is that per se a bad thing to put more things in one basket? Or is it is it okay as long as you separate concerns? Like, how is it from your perspective? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a ideological answer because I'm actually an incredibly large open source zealot. <laughs> so my, my entire company runs off of open source. So basically uh, all of our, uh, you know, infrastructure, all of our monitoring systems, all of our uh, hacking tools, there's a, well, okay, with the hacking tools, there's a few exceptions. We use Burp Pro uh, and Ida Pro, but ex except for that, uh, pretty much everything else is, uh, is open source. So, um, What I would say is that I, I think that uh, proprietary software does have a number of problems. Namely, there's vendor lock-in, which means that uh, oftentimes a lot of intelligence that's gathered by the vendor gets shipped back to the vendor and it's not shared with you. And I think that that's problematic. And the other thing also is that you only have access to those systems for as long as you keep paying. So, I mean, that uh, really kind of locks you into that ecosystem. Whereas if you're using open source and you don't like the vendor that's uh, helping to service the open source, then you just go to another vendor, <laughs> you know, who uh, is used to uh, dealing with the same uh, software. So, and even if you stopped getting support in theory and, and insourced it as well, uh, you know, you're, you're no longer dependent and you can continue owning the things uh, that you set up. So in that sense, uh, I would tend to push uh, people in the direction of uh, open source uh, solutions. Um, a lot of people think, oh, but that's too complex and we need to set it up and configure it and that's more work and we might not have the capacity. I can imagine that there's probably some cases where that's true. <laughs> you know, and in those cases, uh, if you really don't have the internal capacity, then it could be that buying a proprietary solution that aggregates everything could be a better idea. But by and large, though, you're creating an incredibly um, expensive dependence uh, on a third party. And I think it's just way smarter to instead build your internal capacity <laughs> uh, to be able to, to, to manage uh, this kind of stuff yourself, because it's going to give you a kind of continuity <laughs> that you wouldn't have with these uh, third party vendors. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that some other security professionals would uh, would give you 
other, you know, other answers, but, uh, but, but that's also because sometimes they're financially incentivized to do so. Okay. And I, I have a good <coughs> closing question and surprise for you. Um, we, so thanks a lot. Was, was very nice interview, but, um, my outro question, um, comes with a little surprise. So you are using a tool called IDP, um, mm -hmm. an open source, uh, federated identity provider. Mm -hmm. Um, did you actually know that um, it has a security hole that leaks your credentials and allows people to physically travel back in time to your younger self? Um, and uh, I just figured that out. Um, and we basically have the chance to, to like hack into, into your IDP um, and travel back in time uh, to the time when you worked um, as a senior managing consultant um, for a bank that uh, you also named before in 2013. Um, and uh, you basically were working for the Cybercrime Emergency Response Team. Um, and it was the year 2013. And we now travel back in time and observe young Melanie um, like uh, trying trying to hack the bank um, Uh, and, uh, and 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 protect the bank as well. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young Melanie's ears. Um, wh what would it be? Oh, jeez. Apart from don't use IDP, <laughs> it has a security hole. <laughs> But before I answer the question about the advice I would give my younger self, first let me say something about IDP. Uh, we actually, uh, we have found vulnerabilities uh, Uh, the, the developer of IDP is actually one of the members of our uh, our own team at Radically Open Security. So uh, we, we work uh, together really closely with the developer. Uh, we've performed pen tests on it. And of course, yes, just like with any uh, piece of software, uh, <laughs> there are uh, vulnerabilities sometimes. And we're actually right now, uh, one of the dependencies, I'm not going to tell you which one, but one of the dependencies that I, IDP uses uh, is vulnerable. And we actually just right before Christmas did a coordinated vulnerability disclosure. <laughs> uh, and it's not just IDP uh, that's using this library, but it's many other things. So keep your eye open because uh, in... Uh, it's, it's, it's Ruby, right? It's, it's a Ruby software? I can't tell you uh, what it is. But, uh, <laughs> but what I can say is uh, there's a 90-day uh, disclosure uh, term. Uh, so at that point, we'll probably right, be putting okay. up a blog post. Uh, so, so, I, so, so your hypothetical uh, joke, actually, uh, right now we are in the middle of uh, fixing, uh, but it, do it doesn't involve time travel. And, and you didn't yet find the time machine feature? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. uh, no, but, uh, and I won't say more uh, for another 90 days. But, uh, but what I can say is that uh, advice for my younger self, I think, is just, I would say, to believe in myself. <laughs> um, because, of course, when I first uh, started uh, Radically Open Security, I had... You know, I mean, it took six months, you know, probably before we had any kinds of really serious uh, revenue going. I mean, as it always is with uh, startups. And I left, uh, you know, a job at the bank, which had, which had a permanent contract and a really great salary. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people thought I was going to fail because, you know, I was creating a not-for-profit company that donated all of its profits and everyone thought I was crazy, you know. And I just sort of had this vision in my head of what was possible. And I just followed it. And in the beginning, I had total imposter syndrome. I felt like, oh, I'm just like pretending I'm an entrepreneur. I'm just like sitting in my living room playing 
like, you know, playing entrepreneur when I really have a fake company, not a real company. It took a few years before my fake company really started feeling real. <laughs> and of course, uh, now, uh, you know, we're about to have our 10 year anniversary and I'm basically uh, flying our entire team uh, actually to, to Croatia now uh, to um, cool. Uh, to get the whole team together. So I, I'd say by now it's uh, undeniable that we're a, uh, a real company. Uh, but, uh, but of course at the beginning, you know, it, it felt, uh, just like I was going through the motions. Uh, I mean, they always say like, you know, fake it till you make it. We weren't faking it. It was just more, but it feels like faking it because of the, uh, cause of the imposter syndrome. So mm-hmm. I would basically just say, you know, and, and if I think about what I thought that I could achieve at that time, not only was I right back then, but this has already far exceeded my wildest expectations. <laughs> um, because it, it's not just that we've managed to build a thriving company, but it's also that uh, the actual method of entrepreneurship itself, uh, with the whole like not not for profit business stuff. I mean, I actually at a certain point did a bit of pivoting and also put more attention into the business model and teaching it. And I actually created a methodology called post-growth entrepreneurship. And I've been teaching this to other entrepreneurs because after four or five years, other founders started approaching me to say, hey, Melanie, nice company you've got. Can you help me to start my company in a similar fashion with a similar business model? So I created Nonprofit Ventures about uh, four or five years ago. And we've had four cohorts of roughly uh, 12 to 15 founders. So we've uh, incubated a little less than uh, 60 companies uh, in... um, in the incubator, and they all have a focus on nonprofit entity forums, steward ownership, and cross-subsidizing charity with their profits. And not just that, uh, we're managing to build a thriving community around this, but we also, I created a class at the University of Amsterdam in the business school called Post-Growth Entrepreneurship that I am now teaching, like I had the first class yesterday, uh, to 120 third-year bachelor students, and it's officially part of the uh, economics and sustainability minor, and it's worth uh, six uh, European credit points. The fact that our company laid the groundwork for this now that's even, and and now that it's the second year we're teaching this, also the uh, Autonomous University of Barcelona also uh, hired me in to create a uh, two-module degrowth entrepreneurship module, which is basically same materials, just different name. Uh, so it's actually spreading to a second business school now. And also in uh, 2024, I'm going to also be spending some time on the road also to promote this uh, next to my company. Also kind of part of the celebrations for the 10-year anniversary uh, of my company. I'm going to be taking a little mini, mini travel sabbatical uh, just because I can, because 10 years is a long time. You know, so, <laughs> so yeah, so that's part of so, what I would say. Just like you know, believe in yourself because I mean, not only is it going to succeed, but it's just going to become so much more than you ever imagined. Uh, okay, um, I, I think um, you don't have to whisper so much. Much, I mean, you 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 do doing so many great things that you don't need to change so many <laughs> so 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 much of what you're doing, right? Um, um, so congratulations on that and, and, and thanks for the conversation. It was really great. Um, looking forward to meet you again, um, uh, hopefully at a certain point. And uh, yeah, have a great day. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. 
Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com, send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.